is real. Um, I think as in our secular culture, we like kind of dismiss the supernatural, but the supernatural is real. We serve a supernatural God and we also have a supernatural enemy. And I've noticed it's it's like annoying coincidences. Whenever I'm about to preach, something in my family happens, something weird, something triggering to me will happen that'll like kind of try to get me off off balance. And so I wanted to read this scripture real quick. This doesn't really have to do with the sermon, but it might bless you. It might encourage you. So first, Peter four. First Peter four, verse 12 says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. And then I want to skip down to the very last verse. And I remember when I was a kid, I heard this in church and it really, it just stuck to me for some reason. And so in the NLT version, verse 19, it just, I don't know. I just love the way this is said. First Peter four nineteen, and the NLT version says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. All right. So that has nothing to do with the sermon, but hopefully it blesses you. Um, So the sermon today is part two of Unity of the Testaments. Uh, Last week, J.D. was talking about how Jesus is the linchpin for the Old and the New Testament. Everything in the Bible hangs on Jesus being right there. Right. He's the final piece of the puzzle that we need to see the whole picture. So today I'm going to be talking about how to interpret the Bible and how to read the Bible in order to see Jesus as the linchpin, in order to really interpret the truth. Um, So I'm going to go back to Jesus' time. And in Jesus' time, there was many social groups of Jews who were familiar with the Pharisees. Um, But today we're going to be talking about the Sadducees. So Pharisees, you're probably familiar with them. They're really hypocritical, really rigid. Um... Their name literally means separate ones. And they were the working middle class people. They taught in the synagogues all throughout the land. Um, is where they taught. Let's see. Oh, sweet. Okay. Um, and so they recognized all the Old Testament. So first five books of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those, they recognized those. And they also had like a oral tradition too. So just spoken like, hey, if you do this, make sure you do this. And they held that all as authoritative. So they were very hypocritical. They had a lot of like added in laws. Uh, But they did that in order to like preserve Jewish culture because they were under um, duress and stuff. The Sadducees are completely different. Uh, When I was a kid, I thought Sadducees, Pharisees, same thing, just different. You know, Sadducees were a completely different group of Jewish people. They were upper class, they were wealthy, they were aristocratic, and they were more willing to compromise with like secular pagan ideas and stuff. Um, They ruled in the temple in Jerusalem. So when you see, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, that's when he starts getting in arguments with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, right? So difference between them is they only thought that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative. That's all they read. 
And then they also did not believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. So Sadducees and Pharisees, they weren't the same. They, they didn't get along. They were kind of opposite sides of the Jewish spectrum. So we're going to go to Matthew 22, verse 23. This will be the text for today. Matthew 22, 23. And think about what I just said about the Sadducees. They're wealthy. They're kind of like the mob. They've been described as like the mob. Um, all right. So Matthew 22, verse 23 says, That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So it's kind of funny that Jesus, he spends three years arguing with Pharisees, these hypocritical, these rigid, um, very conservative, very strict uh, Jews, right? And he's arguing and arguing. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he has these guys, these other Jews, these Sadducees, who they're so open-minded, their brain fell out, right? And so neither one of these kinds of Jews like Jesus. They both attack Jesus. They both try to get Jesus. And Jesus argues back with them and he attacks him back. Which, what does that tell us? I think Jesus, he's always going to tend to surprise us if we have an idea of what the Bible is and we go into the Bible and think, man, this is my idea. This is my idea. Maybe we might like some parts of Jesus, but at some point Jesus is going to say, hey, 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 I'm not on your side. And I'm not on the other side either. And I'm not in the middle either. Jesus isn't left, right, conservative, liberal. He's not in the middle either. Because if he was in the middle, then both sides would like him. Both sides don't like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus stands on his own. Jesus is who he, he is. Right? And so the Sadducees, they tried to read in their interpretation of Scripture. We cannot read in our interpretation of Scripture into the Bible. Which I want to bring up a term are a couple of terms that are very, very important for every Christian. Those terms are exegesis and eisegesis. Are y'all familiar with those words? Sweet. Okay. So don't fall asleep if you already know. <laughs> so exegesis is the, the definition, is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful, objective analysis. The word exegesis means to lead out of. That means the interpreter is led to his conclusions by following the text. So the opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, where the interpretation of a passage is based on subjective and non-analytical reading. So the word eisegesis means to lead into, which means the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever he wants. So five years ago, when I moved here, and JD was teaching me how to preach, he said, what we do here is exegetical preaching. 
We do expert, expert, oh goodness, expository preaching. And that's how he taught me, right? And so the way to remember it, think about an excavating machine. You see the thing where it digs, you're digging in the scripture to pull a message out of the scripture. I suggest think about I, 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 I. And all it is is I, I, I. So an example of an exegetical message would be uh, Parable of the Lost Sheep, which JD did a few months ago, right? So how do we do it? We started with the parable, we started with the scripture, and we pulled points out of it. One, God leaves the 99 for the one. That's in the scripture. What can we learn from that? Two, he goes into open country. That's in the scripture. What can we learn from that? Three, they rejoice their repentance. What can we learn from that? That was an evangelism sermon, right? Or it could be an evangelism sermon. It could be a sermon about a lot of things. But that is expository. That is pulling it out. Now, an eisegetical lesson on evangelism would be like this. And we've probably heard these before, right? Point number one. Invite your neighbor. Here's my scripture for that. John 13, 35. This is why it means that. Point number two, talk about deep things, right? Here's my scripture for that. Proverbs 20, verse 5. And then point number three, you need to make 12 disciples, right? That would be an eisegetical lesson where it's I, me, the teacher or whatever, and I have three points that I already thought about, and I'm going to find three scriptures that already prove my point, right? So that is, that is, it, it can be appropriate sometimes, eisegetical, sometimes, right? But most of the time when we want to read the, 99% of the time when we're reading the Bible, when we're doing Bible lessons, we want them to be exegetical. We want to dig from the scripture, say, what is the scripture saying to me? Right? So exegesis is like going to a restaurant and saying, what is the special for today? Oh, I heard I heard you guys have the best burgers in town, right? Or I heard you guys have the best salmon in town or something. Oh, what's up, Darnell? All right, so uh, I thought Darnell was going to be here because um, Darnell is my example for this point. So here's, here's what eisegesis would be like. Eisegesis is like going to a restaurant, and there was a time, and it probably is still now, and all the singles know what I'm about to say, where you go to a restaurant... And Darnell, for some reason, he always gets rice, chicken, some kind of peppered jalapenos, something, and some cheese on top. It didn't matter if we were going to a Chinese restaurant, Mexican restaurant, a burger restaurant. Darnell goes, he says, can I get some chicken, some rice, some jalapenos, and some cheese? And every single place he goes, he says, I want that. And so there's no problem with Darnell. We love Darnell. But if we go into the Bible like that, that's a problem. Right. If we go into the Bible like that, that's where you have parts of the Bible where you've never read. Why? Because it's boring. Right. It's not that it's boring. Maybe it's because you're, you're looking for chicken. You're looking for chicken in a, in a steakhouse or something. Right. Like the book of Leviticus. Why do most people not like the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers? Because it doesn't have nice one liners because it doesn't have cool stories. Is that why we're reading the Bible for one liners? Right. If we read the Bible with an exegetical mindset, then we'll go and say, what does Leviticus have that I can learn? Right. Not what can I get? Well, I guess what can I get? Because Leviticus don't have nothing in it. It doesn't not have. You know what I mean? 
it's not it's not an empty it's not blank pages right there's something in every single book all right so the sadducees they go up to jesus and they're like they're asking for chicken and rice right they didn't believe in the resurrection and so they come up with this weird quest theoretical situation what if someone has seven wives which one is their wife when they die mr resurrection man right and he doesn't even answer the question he doesn't even answer the question because there's two things that they don't understand that are more important than the answer to this theoretical cherry-picked question. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. <clears throat> and so those are going to be two points that I talk about today. Knowing the scriptures. So first thing about knowing the scriptures, we should have a wide-reaching, broad knowledge of the scriptures. We should know the scriptures front and back better than anybody. There shouldn't be Muslims who know our Bible more than us. There shouldn't be people from other religions who know our Bible better than us. Yeah. And honestly, if, if you can read and if you've been a follower of Jesus for a few years, there's no excuse for you having not have read the whole Bible. It's just, especially in this age where we've, we're watching seasons and seasons of Netflix, where we're watching hours and I watch an hour of YouTube a day, me personally. So I have no excuse. I have no excuse. If we're on social media all day, TikTok all day, we have no excuse for not having read the entire Bible. It's literally only because of our lack of discipline and it's also pride. Because we think that I can live life as a Christian only knowing this much of the Bible. The Bible that is meant to give me life, the Bible is meant to guide me in all my ways, that's prideful for me to think I don't need to read the whole thing. I can just live off of Ephesians or something. Right? So, it, and I also do want to say, it is it is possible to read the Bible. It, it, it can be daunting. It is a big book. It is a very deep book. But it is possible. Um, I think if you have a buddy who also has the same goal, that's the way that I've gotten through it the last two times, is my friend Cortland in college, he said, hey, let's read the whole Bible. I was like, okay. And we were, we just grinded. And then last year, my friend Travis, he, he said, let's read it in 90 days. And I was like, 90 days? which would be 10 chapters a day. And I was like, well, I mean, it's not like I'm, I watch anime every day. So what, like I have no excuse. And uh, so we tried it and we did not finish the Bible in 90 days, but we finished the Bible in 160 days. But what did that take? It took setting a specific time. I said, no matter what, Every single day, I'm going to read my Bible 30 minutes a day. I'm going to listen to my Bible 30 minutes a day, 45 minutes a day. Maybe while I'm cleaning the dishes, maybe while I'm driving to work, maybe while I'm working out, maybe while I'm running. But we have to have a mindset of there's no failure is not an option, right? Not having read, not reading the Bible is not an option for a Christian. Because we need to have a broad sense of knowledge about the Bible. I remember Douglas Jacoby, y'all are familiar with him. He's a writer, a scholar. He started off this one lesson by saying, uh, he's like, how deep is your knowledge of the Bible? He said, do you know about the era of the patriarchs, the time of the judges? Do you know about the uh, the Judah and Israel split and why that happened? Do you know about the five books of Psalms? I was like, there's five books in Psalms? <laughs> right? Do you know about the Babylonian exile? Do you know about the scriptures written before, during, and after it? You know about the seven I am's in John, the seven churches in Revelation? Do you know about the difference between apocalyptic literature and non-apocalyptic apocalyptic literature? 
And I was like, goodness gracious, there's more to the Bible than just what I knew. And there is. And that is why it's important, because there's people out there who know that and they're going to come up to us like Sadducees and ask us these theoretical questions and try to embarrass us. So the only thing worse than us Christians walking around with complete ignorance about what's in the Bible is us Christians walking around with false teaching about what's in the Bible. And so having a broad knowledge of the scriptures defends against both of those, against ignorance and against false teaching. So I want to challenge y'all, if you've never read the whole thing, just start, right? Maybe do it once a year, maybe do it every two years, every four years when the Olympics happens, or every year before football season, something, before your birthday, something like that. Try to Try to do that. Now, here's a, another aspect of what Jesus said when he said, you are in, a, in error because you do not know the scriptures. Our, ne- our knowledge of scriptures should be wide. You saw that picture before, of, like the excavator excavating a wide, broad area. Right. But it should also be really deep. And so that's a picture of a really deep wall. This pictures for this were super easy. Um, it should be very deep. Very beautiful. Um, and so that that brings me to kind of a, when I was reading this, I kind of was conflicted because Jesus is slamming these guys for not understanding the scripture. But how in the world am I supposed to understand like resurrection and an afterlife just from the Old Testament? Like, if you think about it, could you prove that there's heaven? and an afterlife and a resurrection just from Old Testament scriptures? Like if, if someone asked you right now, that's all you had, could you do it? it? It'd be pretty challenging. And so the fact that Jesus wants my knowledge of scripture to be that deep to where I, I can prove a resurrection from the Old Testament, that's pretty challenging. That's very challenging to me. If the way that I'm reading the Bible is not pulling out the truths that Jesus wants me to be pulling out, then I might need to redo the way that I am reading the Bible. I need to learn how to properly exegete scripture and not miss key things like the Sadducees had missed or key things like what the Pharisees had missed. So when we read, we should always be asking anything we read. We should be asking, what is the author saying right here? Why is the author saying this right here? Who is the author saying this to? When is the author saying this? Right. We shouldn't read scripture and say, oh, I guess the author is saying this. OK, cool. Quiet time's done. Right. We should not be looking at the scripture like that. We should be looking at it like a child, like asking stupid questions about the scripture. Why did he say his ear? Right. I, I, that was a scripture. This morning I read a scripture where he said, you pierced my ears. And I was like, why is he talking about his ear? Right. We should be asking questions. Stupid. Ask stupid questions. Every single verse you read, ask the dumbest question you can, and it'll help you understand the Bible better. Um, Some resources, because we have the internet now. They didn't have the internet back then, so maybe give them a break. But for us, uh, my favorite resource is Blue Letter Bible. I use it for literally every single sermon. Um, And so you can get the Hebrew words, Greek words, you can get commentary. Um, If you don't have a study Bible, I would get a study Bible or a Bible dictionary. Uh, I don't know how I'm doing on time, but there's a funny story about the reason why I have a study. I got it. Y'all know why I have a study Bible? Because like the first time I preached to this church, I said something incorrect. 
and John Rudin came up to me the next week <laughs> and he said, if you're going to be preaching, here is a study Bible, right? And if you read in this part, then you'll see that this is actually what happened in that Bible. So yeah, study Bibles are very important. And um, yeah, um, anyways, the way we study our Bibles in our personal time might be in need of an audit. It might be in need of an audit. Jesus is upset that they had read the Bible and still thought that we'd be married in heaven. Isn't that crazy? That's something like kind of little to us. We're like, oh yeah, maybe I might be married. But Jesus, he's upset that they thought that they'd still be married. And he's even more upset that they read the Bible and didn't think there was life after death. Right? And so he says, you are an error because you do not know the power of God. So could the lackluster way that we read scripture really mean that we're missing out on understanding how powerful God is. Have you ever had someone like show you a feature on your phone that you were like, I had no idea my phone did that, right? Like, do you know that there's a, there's a button on the back of your phone? You can tap the back of your phone and it's a button. Or, um, I remember when I, huh? Yeah, there's a button on the back. You, you can go like that and it'll, you command it to do things. And you can you can do tap tap you can do tap 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 yeah iPhone yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> but yeah it's kind of like that like we're missing out on knowledge of the power of God because we we don't know our scriptures right like I had no idea that God said Jesus says I'll be like an angel up in heaven right I'm supposed to know that. That's, a, that's something about the power of God that is, is ridiculous, right? I had no idea that when I die, God will be so big and so magnificent and so powerful that when I meet him, marriage doesn't exist. It's, it's such a situation that marriage does not even exist up in heaven, right? Like in, on earth, people will joke. You'll hear jokes like this where like, oh, if I ever meet George Clooney, then it's over for my husband, right? Or if I ever meet Jennifer Lopez, right? You'll hear those silly jokes, right? But in reality, if you meet Jennifer Lopez, you meet George Clooney, you're still going to be married the next day. You're still going to be married to your your spouse. But when you get to heaven and you meet God face to face, when you meet God face to face, you're no longer married to your spouse. He's that powerful. He's that powerful. And so Jesus, he explains this by pulling them back to Exodus 3, which is actually kind of cool because he uses you remember the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Bible so he uses their books to prove to them about the resurrection so Exodus 3 verse 6 this is when Moses is talking to the burning bush God is appearing in a burning bush and talking to Moses Moses is probably very nervous right now very scared right now um And so God is telling him that he wants him to go speak to Pharaoh and free the slaves. And the way he introduces himself is, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Later in verse 13, Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And then in verse 14, God says, I am, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. <clears throat> so in Matthew 22, Jesus, he refers to this, right? And he says, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the living, or he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, Jesus. So how am I supposed to have gotten that from that? How am I supposed to understand that there's an afterlife from that line of scripture? That would take a really, really, really close look at that scripture. That would require me to sit and think about that scripture, tear it apart word by word by word. It takes me really looking close at that scripture for me to notice that God didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for me to notice that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For me to notice that God is speaking about people in the past as if they were present. And for me to notice that, and then even keep pondering that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're dead, but he's talking about them like they're still around. So, and he's around them. He's talking about them like he's around them. God is around the dead. The dead are around. There's an afterlife. What? What? That's how closely we should be examining scripture, analyzing scripture, right? So here's another cool thing about uh, exegeting, right? If you use blue letter Bible, uh, like what I, I use for this one, you can look at the Hebrew word for I am. And so the word I am comes from the Hebrew word haya, haya. But I, so haya means to be, and then ehye means I am. And so, but that, that root word haya, if you were to translate it literally, he said, when he says I am who I am, he's also saying, I will be who I will be. I will be who I will be. And then also, where's the first time that we hear haya in the Bible? is in Genesis 1, where he says, Hayah be light. Let there be light. It's pretty cool. That's also where we get the name of God, Yahweh, or Yah, some people say. So it's pretty cool. You're looking at the Hebrew word, it'll give you another depth. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. So that even further, he says, I will be who I will be, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How is he able to say, I will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How? There's a, there must be a resurrection. Why is he talking in future tense about the dead? There must be a resurrection. There must be an afterlife. None of us can say that I am and I will be about many things past five minutes from now, really. Like, I can't say that I will be an engineer for 300 years. I can't say that I will be the husband of Ariel in 300 years, right? I can't say that I will be six feet tall in, in even five years, you know? Like, but God can say, I am and I will be the God of Ariel and Nathan for the next 10,000 years. I am who I am is the name by which God wished to be known and worshiped in Israel. It's a name that expresses his character as dependable and faithful and who desires the full trust of their, his people with their entire life. God is eternal. Life and death to God are just 
like a little a door, right? 10,000 years ago and 10,000 years ahead are just, they're the same thing. It's nothing to God. He stands outside of our idea of time. He stands outside of our idea of a lifespan, our idea of power. He stands outside of it. He's so much more powerful than we can even fathom. And it would be a tragedy if we call ourselves a Christian and we don't get that because we never dove into our Bibles deeply. If we never fall into our knees with our jaw on the ground and tears in our eyes saying, God, you are so powerful. You're so, it's crazy. You're so loving. You're so amazing. You're so magnificent. You're so beautiful. If we never read the scripture and it gives us that effect, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And we can say, oh, I'm, well, I'm just not like that. I'm just, you know, I'm real stoic. There's people 10 times more stoic than you in the Bible who have had those reactions to scripture. Right? None of us is too stoic to be affected. For no one, None of us is too stoic for our heart to be cut by the truth of God. Jesus wants us to have a level of understanding of the scriptures to where we know how powerful he is. He says in John 8, 31, we know this one, to the Jews who had believed, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Good feelings won't free us. Just hanging out with people from church won't free us. Knowledge of the truth will free us. Not our truth that we insert into the Bible, but God's truth that he inserts into us. That is what will free us. So exegesis, just kind of wrapping it up. Exegesis is letting the Bible speak to us rather than me speaking what I want from the Bible. To exegete, it takes time. It takes setting, having discipline to read your Bible multiple times a week, right? (laughs) To dive into the Bible and to know it deeply. So pray and ask God for wisdom of the Bible. Pray and ask him for understanding. Pray and ask God to speak to you through the Bible. Let's make time in our schedules to go deep and broad into the scriptures. So there's a declaration. Yeah, each one of these sermons for unity of the Testament has a declaration. So this is the declaration Declaration for this sermon. I want you all to say it with me. One, two, three. We will let the Bible speak to us instead of speaking what we want to the Bible. Amen. Thank you very much. Amen.